This is Paul. This is Sheila. And this is Inez. And all three of us are here this week to talk about the sixth episode of CBS All Access's The Stand. This episode was called The Vigil, and it was directed again by Chris Fisher, the same director as last week, and written by Jill Kill and Nate Lee. Yeah, they've had quite a run so far. They have indeed. They are both producers on the show, so it's not totally unusual to see producer names appear as writers. Producer is sort of a weird term in TV, so it can mean a lot of different things, but a lot of times it means those that work in the writer's room. <laughs> but you're right. Those two have come up quite a bit, especially Jill Kill. She's she's had, what, three or four episodes that we've noticed now out of the, the six? But she had different writing partners. That's, that's right. right. Yes, that's right. Owen King, I guess right. that makes him kind of a prince. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, he pitched in on one of those. Uh, yeah. And to be honest, I'm sure he pitches in on all of these scripts to some extent. I'm excited. This like this was Chris Fisher again. So we got to interview him like, you know, now it's now it's like a month ago since we interviewed him. So, you know, what we talked about is a little further from my memory. But I just remember him talking about like buckets of blood. Buckets you know, of blood was the that, thing that really came to mind. Yes. stayed with me. And when I was watching this episode tonight, I was like, and there are the buckets of blood. Right. Found them. <laughs> Found them. <laughs> um, I'm hesitant to say that, you know, like anything is my favorite out of anything. But so far, these two episodes that Chris Fisher has directed have been the most striking to me visually you know we got introduced to new vegas last time and just how violent this episode was in terms of of all the different things that happened it just it fits the style of what he was talking to us about so i'm excited for that uh, that interview to finally come out what did you notice about this one minus this episode was really tense i was very on edge this episode kind of gave some more explanation and validity to add to that tension that was already there. I, I was It was very exciting for me. The fact that they did change the narrative from the book a little bit in order to give us longtime book readers, uh, you know, the same story, but with a little surprise in there in terms of like how it got done. I am OK with that. The, the main thrust of the story is the same. The, the same people get impacted by the changes that and so it's not like anyone outlived when they were supposed to uh but the way it happened was a little different but i'm not sure that that difference is ter totally terrific i'm talking about nick in in the house at the end but um but we can get we can talk about it when we get there i have my notes split up into basically three sections we have like the events of New Vegas, we have the events in Boulder, and then we have just a couple of other loosey goosey events <laughs> that happen <laughs> outside I of the I love those that settings. term. <laughs> <laughs> Let's first talk about the addition of a character that we've been waiting to see this whole time, none other than Trash Can Man. I've been really excited about seeing what how this is going to turn out. Did Trash Can Man live up to whatever you had hoped for him? I think he's creepier 
than in the book. This live version of it's a pretty rad adaptation for him. It just the way that he's he's so connected to Flag and so just outside the norms of social constructs. Uh, social everything. Yeah. <laughs> I I really I really liked his introduction. I like that they saved it for now. You know, you and I have been talking about it for a couple weeks. You're like, when are they gonna introduce him? Because he's credited <laughs> in like every Bam, right every episode we're like all right well where is he they neatly glossed over the kid's absence <laughs> they didn't fine. need him they no. didn't need him so i really love what they've done with his character and i love how they kind of really rapidly got us caught up with the story they did a fantastic job really portraying this very unhinged pyromaniac so he gets weirdly excited about this kind of stuff in a way that i don't think that i really truly appreciated when I was reading the books. You know, I kind of feel like I hear a lot of pyromania, but this was something else. It was creepy. His screeching, I think, was yes. kind of a new thing. Kind of makes up for the fact that we don't see the kid. Uh, and so it's kind of like an all-in-one encompassing um, representative, if you will, in here. And, oh, it, it was, I felt like it was a very impactful intro. Now, help me remember, in the book, he does get introduced to us by blowing something up. I think it was more of a tank farm than whatever facility it was that he blew up in the episode. But was he jacking off in the book? That I don't remember. I was trying to, like, go back and... Because and, I have the audiobook. At, well, I have the Kindle book, too. But... Um, <laughs> it is 800 pages. <laughs> it is 800 pages. And it's kind of hard to, like, you know, Google or search in a Kindle book, you know, whacking off. Um, <laughs> but there were... It was, like, a, it was tanks that he blew up. So I, I got the feeling that this was this was lifted right from the pages of the book. But I couldn't find evidence that he was getting self-pleasure out of it. For those who read the book, there's so much cringiness that associated with that side of stuff that I'm like, I will take this version. I'm okay having <laughs> jacking off version to a pyro scene versus like reliving the horrors of how I felt during all of those chapters. It's funny, you know, I, I, I'm normally not a proponent for, you know, adding jacking off to a show. <laughs> Weirdly, this is tamer, right? <laughs> but I feel like if it is an ad, and forgive me if some book reader out there will say, nope, it was there. It helps characterize someone that had been pretty much just crazy on the page. It's an extreme way of finding a way to pleasure oneself sexually and blowing stuff up. But in the kind of the scope of, of like TV and movies and stuff like that, I've seen that kind of thing before, you know, like car crashes or, or something like that, where someone causes destruction and mayhem and that's what gets them off. Man, I bet he's been setting fires his whole life, jacking off a little bit, feeling okay about it. And then this is like, you know, no one's here to tell me no. So why don't I really go for the gold? <laughs> so that helps a little bit, his his character. I agree. Yeah. A couple of weeks ago, Inez, Sheila and I had some talking about Pandemic Paul versus Apocalypse Paul, because I've been I've been outlining all the changes that would come to my personality should should Apocalypse Paul need to be called upon kind of a shoot first sort of uh, mentality. I get the sense that Trash Can Man was 1000% closer to Apocalypse version of himself, given that he had that Mad Max suit, like, ready to go. <laughs> you know, leather straps, just sort of a loincloth, codpiece sort of situation. Everyone else is still wearing clothes. 
Well, I mean, he accessorized his outfit also with that syringe that was just kind of stored <laughs> at the top of his yeah. clothing. And he's just, he's just got his, you know, heroin access ready to go whenever he feels likely when he's coming back down from that high of another pyrotechnical display that he's done somewhere. He was probably ahead of the curve from the rest of the world when it came to <laughs> transitioning to our final personalities in this environment. There is a change in the dreams that from everyone else. He visualizes the dark man as truly a dark man that almost looks like a personification of death. Mm-hmm. Why the big change for him? Or is it just a way of like framing the dreams for someone whose, I don't know, brain power seems to be focused very small into a way that he could comprehend. It's just that everyone else got to see Randall in the dream and Randall came and made his appeal, you know, come live with me or, or whatever. But all Trashy got was the robed figure. Randall Flagg, they mention him coming in different forms and different names. And we've seen him in some of these other forms already. We've seen him in, uh, you know, as an animal and as a being and as a voice and in different kinds of elements of how he manipulates the environment. I I think we could argue he kind of, he's a shapeshifter in that kind of way, just this kind of really powerful sorcerer. I don't know. There's something special to him about Trash Can Man, and it's maybe symbolic of some kind of special connection that he has with him, which is, you know, this very intense mindset that is compatible with the way for Trash Can Man to digest the experience of the dream, maybe because his brain is framed differently. You know, the message has to be communicated to him in a customized kind of way, and maybe he just relates better to that. He was awake when Randall mm, came to him. Big difference. Yeah, I noticed that yeah, too. Yeah, so he was in the throes of ecstasy from... <laughs> God, I love that phrase. Um, from the syringe, from, you know, the tanks blowing up. This is probably a lifelong dream of his, his pinnacle moment, if you will. God, I'm really reaching deep with these. He was definitely in a different state of mind than the others. So for me, this was trash can man being told that he's going to be a servant like he th- i know i think what you said about like the way that his brain is framed things had to be said in such a way that he's there to serve randall in a way that maybe the others aren't you know we're, we're getting the sense that that randall wants it for something very specific so i think it just had to be done in that way for him to understand what it was that he ne- was needed for and that really ties in well with the conversation that they have back in new vegas we kind of jump through any part where they're retrieving him or absence of kid or whatever. Yeah, he just turned up. I was like, that is neat and surgical. (laughs) He just appears in New Vegas and is in the penthouse right away. And the language and the way that Flag deals with him is sort of childlike. He has a little fire problem that he wants him to solve and he gets right into that. Now we have a a new disciple. So all that seems to be following kind of the expected pattern from the book. We just have this character now that, you know, the last portrayal Matt Frewer did in the first series, he seemed crazy, but uh, this guy seems uh, like a different kind of crazy. Ezra Miller is the actor and he's bringing just a, I don't know where his where the line is between just sort of living on instinct and any sort of humanity (laughs) is with this guy anymore. There was something interesting that I noticed about this relationship that's developing between Flag and Trash Can Man. Randall was levitating in the penthouse having the, the dream sequence with Trash Can. The fire behind him was glowing brightly. And then 
when Trash Can Man arrived, Flag was tinkering with it, saying, oh, I'm having trouble with it. And if you pay attention to the details, I thought it was a really great way to bring Trash Can in, to make him feel valued, to make him feel that he's needed and that his expertise is wanted. I was right there with you. You know, he's trying to build rapport. I mean, it probably was the first time ever in Trash Can Man's life to ever have anybody be proud and excited and interested in his world. And so that's just going to, you know, really rapidly close that learning curve between what Flag needs out of him and what Trash Can's going to end up doing for him. Which is, as he discusses with Lloyd, to create this bomb for, quote unquote, the holdouts. Interesting. There was sort of a, not exactly, kind of a a, a live and let live approach uh, between his group and the other group. But now I I think everyone that's not his group is going to be considered holdouts. Yeah, it felt very ominous. Continuing with New Vegas, we have Tom Cullen and his mission to try to figure out what that note from Dana was last week. He identifies it, give credit to the character, right? He, he, he matches letter for letter, word on a, on a machine, but he still can't read it. Run on the on that machine with the green button. When the four person came down and told him that he needed to go clean up the puke in the fountain, either of you pick up on a slight, I'll say slight Gary Sinise reference there. No. She says, run, Forrest, run. Oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't equate that with Gary Sinise. Oh, man. Yeah, I heard her say run, Forrest, run, and I laughed. Maybe I'm making a stretch. I don't think so. Pretty common thing to say when you're being a jerk to somebody is <laughs> yep. run, Forrest, run. Yes, definitely. <laughs> but, just... but I did not make the connection with Gary Sinise. Very good. Point for Paul. There we go. <laughs> I really, I did enjoy the fact that, that Tom did not show Rat Woman the note from Dana. I was really scared that he was going to show her the note. I literally was clapping because I was like, you're so clever, Tom, for asking what it is on the mechanical board. So I was happy that that was an update for Tom. So Rat Woman, she was the MC then. Yes, I did not make that connection at first. And then I didn't uh, realize the Facebook that. group helped me with that one. Oh, man. I should read the Facebook group notes. We would just like to thank Anna for all her hard work because it is a thankless job, but we are very appreciative. Very much so. She's a friend of the clubhouse. Go, Anna. Hell yeah. The last scene we get with Tom Cullen, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit in the narrative, where he hides himself amongst the corpses to escape. That's not how he got out the, in, in the book, is it? He just he just left, right? Yeah, he just he took off. This helps add some tension because I mean, obviously, hiding in a in a stack of dead bodies isn't fun. There are these guys driving the truck who are going to deal with the dead bodies that he's going to have to get away from. That's not great. On balance, this is probably a way to ratchet up some tension for Tom. Maybe was borrowed from other Stephen King material. With Tom, these updates that they're giving him, he saw Julie and he he recognized that as a danger sign. Mm. And that's when he took off and he was terrified. I don't know if it was it was intentional, if it was accidental, but the the connection that he made with Julie and her signifying danger was uh, plus for the me, run. I mean, he plus, did plus run. Yeah. yeah. But really, Julie's what prompted him to to take action in that moment. And I was just so scared for him. And then like, I was all nervous. His glasses came off. I was like, I just hope they're on that glasses chain, Tom. Some of these like small details, but for somebody in his situation, not having his glasses would be tantamount to the end of the world. As you guys mentioned last week, there was a subtraction of the hypnosis business. To Thank God. Yeah. And if you, if you really look at it cinematically, what hypnosis 
looks like in terms of how it functions and all that kind of stuff has got to be in the viewer's mind unless you're going to have like voiceover or something have like you know Stu's voice <laughs> say the moon is full get the fuck out you know <laughs> it's 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 not terrific filmmaking compared to what we saw which was him putting it together that to borrow another uh, Stephen King quote, the ground's gone sour, yeah. <laughs> that it's time to get out. I'm one of the people, so learn people who are strictly committed to the books. It is okay to enjoy a different journey and different modality <laughs> of the story. Amen, so, sister. <laughs> so disclaimer out there. And as a huge fan of the books, I wasn't angry about it. I assumed it was connected to deviating from the whole hypnosis story because it kind of in the book kind of could read like you know being a machine you know almost like oh it's just magically now the sun is full and I therefore am executing xxx subconsciously I think that instead of you know all of that giving Tom a lot more credit and I think was really great for them to do that probably the most probable kind of way for him to maneuver and get through undetected by flag and still you know, maintain dignity for the character. I think they achieved that with what they got here. And they have one Tom Cullen that is now <laughs> buried under a pile of bodies, but that's actually the safest place for him, given his situation. Let's go back to New Vegas for just one more scene. The buckets of blood scene. God, I love this scene. One Bobby <laughs> Terry introduced with the song Black Betty by Ram Jam playing in the background. Always a way of you're not introducing someone walking into church when you're playing Black Betty. You are showing someone or some sequence that you think is badass. So I think we're supposed to get the Bobby Terry is someone you don't fool around with. He's he's a he's an operator of some sort. He's also another Westworld alum. If you uh, recall, he played Lawrence Clifton Collins. A badass Jr. character. Yes. <laughs> yes. A theme here. Right. I don't know if there are any more Westworld people, but yeah, that's that's two. On the back of his motorcycle jacket, it said Lords of Discord. I don't know if that's from the book or not, but the term Discord is, again, another Dark Tower term. The bad guy in the Dark Tower wants to destroy this thing called the Dark Tower, which is sort of like the very thing that is holding the universe together. And if it falls, the universe falls into Discord, which is confusion and strife. Given that Randall wants to use his, his bomb and his bomb man to quote unquote you know get rid of the holdouts and leave only the people that are somewhere between dark gray and black on the scale of, of goodness i think i think that's uh similar aims and so seeing that really resonated that was a deep cut there paul yeah i try <laughs> when, when, when i can i try that was like inez and myself with the uh, the fire with randall <laughs> good stuff yeah see that's what we that's what we try to bring here on this podcast boulder free zone radio brought to you by pod clubhouse before we get to the elevator of death i love i loved how randall delivered the line bobby terry you screwed it up oh i just like it, i just saw it lifting off the page it was just it was beautiful what makes that so cool for, for a viewer like me is uh, Alexander Skarsgård. He operates at a voice level that's a lot like this most of the time, you know? So yes, very he, controlled. When he doesn't, it's about to go down. Yes. <laughs> He's not calling to see, you know, what's on TV. It's a bad deal. And if it's your name that he's saying, 
Extra loud, even worse. And Terry knew it. <laughs> he, he knew he fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> what with the fast walking, near running, even a cool guy knows it's time to time to go. Did he really think he was going to keep him in by locking the, the doors? <laughs> <laughs> it was a very measly piece of metal chain, was, too, wasn't yeah, it? <laughs> it was like his pocket chain or something. It was just ridiculous. Right. The guy isn't Satan, but he's as close as you're going to find on Earth. Yeah, you're going to need more. How sinister Flag came off on that scene. You know, Bobby's so sassy and almost arrogant like on his way up but it was a very different man on on the way out <laughs> so i mean from what i could tell there was a combination of just pummeling and throwing and eating and biting teeth yeah by the time randall was done with him it combines every kind of attack that a man and partial god might have available to him do you suppose that having that attack shown for everybody on the gaming floor there or the centurion floor or whatever you want to call it do you suppose that's really the way that that flag likes to operate that he that he likes to splash around <laughs> if you will um his power or do you or do you suppose he really would have preferred to be as the kind of the mysterious guy from your dreams New Vegas is so flashy and loud and obnoxious. This is a way to instill fear for people to just fall in line and do what they need to do. I now know why Lloyd has trouble being present in intimate moments with his lady, you know, when Flag's name was. I think last week I was saying, I don't understand how it was just so instantaneous and so intense. Now I totally see that, seeing their interactions. And then, you know, Lloyd probably has seen these kinds of displays of power before too. And even though he's very clearly now like stressed out about him, like he's not going to fuck around with him because he knows he's going to lose. There's no question about it. There's no arrogance when it comes to Lloyd knowing his place with flag. If I were one of the deviants on the floor and I saw this, this glass elevator filling up with blood on the way down, I think that would be a real boner killer too. Yeah. I would say so. Yeah, yeah. I'll be drier than the Sahara after that. <laughs> no more orgy night for me. Yeah, that, that'll right. kill it ear right. in a I'm second. Gonna, I'm gonna go. <laughs> you guys look take... really busy. Yeah, right. I was actually surprised that anybody noticed with mm. all the orginess going on. We've seen all kinds of things going on in the elevator, on the balconies, on the floor of the lobby, everything. Yeah, Inez, what you said about Lloyd, I actually I made a note about him. I was just like, now. I understand why he's so afraid because he's seen both the public and the private delivering of justice by Randall. So absolutely understand why he, he's got no boners left. Understand why. <laughs> <laughs> and then also he's he's scared for his position with um, the introduction of Trash Can Man. Lloyd is afraid. He's he's jealous or he's threatened by Trash Can Man. He's worried about his own position because he's seen what Flag can do. And now everybody else can do can see what he's done as well. And I do think, Paul, what you said earlier on the first part of the question, that this is also a way to make sure people stay in line. You can have your fun. You can have your sex. You can have your violence. You can have all of it. Just make sure that you do it within the constructs of what I say is law. An occasional 
show of force is required in that kind of structure to make sure people don't forget, that they don't start getting some ideas. This is a dictatorship, not a democracy over there. Obsessively, he brings it up in all kinds of conversations about remaining loyal. So the siege just kind of figure out the formula that works for this bunch of people. I mean, this is the first time that we heard Trash Can Man say, my life for you, mm -hmm. which he will go on to say probably another thousand times. <laughs> by the not, time not quite as endearing as M-O-O-N. <laughs> no, no. That's another element of the Dark Tower that when Flag crosses over into those series of books under a different name, there is another guy with another T name, the TikTok man, who basically loses his mind and decides to commit his series of upcoming misdeeds to him. The Flag character says, you know, I once ran into a guy that told me my life for you. And I really liked the sound of that. And then so he started saying that in those books. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. I do have one question before we move on outside of New Vegas. Yeah. And I don't know if this is something that you both might know, or maybe I missed something, or maybe somebody out there in the audience can answer. But why does Flag smell the judge? You know, when they unzip her and he's just smelling her, he has his face right up against hers and smelling her to verify she is the one who is talking about. Why is it that he needs to do that to be able to tell? Maybe that's the wolf persona. Maybe he picked up her scent when he was impersonating Ooh. or like shape-shifting to a wolf. And maybe he's matching the scent in his mind. That's the only thing that I can think of. But I think that's a great question. I, too, think it ties into that wolfiness about him, um, that there is that feral element. He's not, I mean, he takes the shape of a man for us so that we will follow him and be scared of him and all that. But I think there are other, other elements in there, including that ability to turn into a wolf. You know, the way that an animal might smell a dead thing to make sure it's dead <laughs> or something. Um, that, that all ties together for me. Speaking of Randall and his dealing with other people, and animals he appears to abigail in the woods it, it, they don't show it but i think you're supposed to get the idea like he wolfed his way over there and then appeared to him her as the man and he appears to do it just to want to fuck with her you know i kept trying to think about what we were what we talked about last week balance we know we had the where there's the black and the white contrast so to me in my mind i've I'm thinking of it as like this, equal, they equal each other out in, in terms of the universe. But mm -hmm. this scene kind of dispelled my assumption that they were equal opposing forces. Um, Abigail had no fear of flag. We've already seen how terrifying and intimidating he is. Yet here he is confronting her, can't really harm her. You know, and she's just in his face like, I don't care. And she said that beautiful quote, basically you can't put me anywhere. God won't find me. Mm. Yes. As much as flag wants to be on the same level ground as, as God, it's evidence here to prove that he really isn't as powerful as like that top being is kind of bringing this ominous, you know, presence of him down a little bit. It's still big and it's still terrifying, but it kind of shows like it's not, two omniscient beings playing tug of war with each other there there is some kind of hierarchy of god still being all powerful in this element and flag has more vulnerabilities than um, a lot of people think one thing that stood out to me that's good stuff 
that goes a lot deeper than just fucking with her. Um, (laughs) 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 So I'm I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that to the discussion. Um, One thing that I saw in this scene that again, reminded me of more Stephen King work was the appearance of the flock of birds. He's used in other work. It's a term that I know because of other, his other work, it's called a psychopomp. And the traditional uh, usage of a psychopomp, like a, a flock of birds like that, like ravens or sparrows or, or crows or whatever, is they're supposed to take a newly dead soul and escort them to the afterworld. Um, but Stephen King will often use that, <laughs> that same idea to kind of rush along the idea that someone wants to kill you and <laughs> use, use the birds as the weapon and kind of tie in that afterworld part that way, if you get my meaning, rather than waiting for you to be dead and then taking you to the afterworld um, post-death. Can't really compete with what I said. I mean, that was just that was beyond deep. And it was, I feel like, really spot on. But I, I feel like the birds that the, what did you call it? It is? The psychopomp. The psychopomp. In, in this series, the way that, that the birds, especially the, the crows have been used, is that they're like a harbinger of evil. Mm. Something bad is about to happen. We saw the the bird in New York City when Larry mm-hmm. and Rita meet, and then the, all the, the trouble in the, tunnels, that, right? in the tunnel with the the stigmata man, the crows that attacked the the window in that um, that otherworldly moment that they had with him, and then that was the the notion that evil was coming, and now and now this, and then this episode, the the evil that's coming is is how we we end it, the attack on Mother Abigail's house. So I think it was a really well done setup for what happens. Although, like I said, he's not Satan. He's still powerful enough. And the fact that Abigail stands against him and has no fear of him, that still doesn't mean like she can't succumb to his attacks. It's just that she's strong enough and and her faith in God is enough that she's she's willing to to live through that and, and, and still beseech god on on behalf of the rest of the people that aren't following flag well even them too if they come around but mostly it's her guys <laughs> right there's no nuclear option in, in her arsenal let's, so let's flip over to boulder um the time is 48 minutes i don't think we'll finish in 12 minutes but um i think we're doing a lot better than last week I, so that's good um let's see here so we have search teams for abigail's and we have things lining up for the vigil okay it's go time for harold and nadine to do whatever it is that they're going to do harold seems like he's 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 all in nadine is still kind of sure that she wants to go along with it um what did you what did you think of the conflict there especially how uh little joe says his first words that it's uh nadine and mama nadine nadine are not the same person um I mean, if you were Larry, wouldn't that have been like a hold up kind of moment? (laughs) 
there were lots of instances in the Boulder scenes where I was just confused at the lack of communication and the lack of trust. Um, this was one of them when Joe, I think, that, are these the first words we've heard from Joe? I believe so. Yeah. The fact that he spoke for the first time and Larry didn't take action or say something or confront Nadine, I'm just a little confused. But again, Larry's struggling with trying to be known as, as a nice guy versus you're no nice guy. Franny not telling anybody that Harold has, you know, this locked basement and he's got all these weird things from Larry's busting, which is presumably the night before from the way that the timeline is happening. So there was just lots of things that were going on that like, why didn't you speak up? Why didn't you say something? Because things could have gone differently if you had just said what you knew, said what you, you know, what you were told. A little confused why they, there's not more trust amongst the people in Boulder, especially amongst the five, that Franny didn't think to tell anybody, or Larry didn't think to tell anybody that he was in Harold's house at at Franny's request. You know, it's like when you, I don't know, I guess it's maybe because I'm from New York, and we definitely have this culture imbued in us now of if you see something, say something. For the last 20 years, um, in a post-9-11 world, you know, we're very attuned to if something's not right, if something is out of sorts uh, with, you know, the way of the world. We've been trained to, like, tell somebody something. I don't know if that's a, a right connection, but that's kind of what I was seeing here, especially from the outcome of not saying what you knew, what you, what you could have prevented, like, all of that all wrapped in. That's kind of where that trust level got me to. Well, we know that that she told Stu and Stu, it's not that he blew it off. It's that he gave him the benefit of the doubt, which is entirely unearned. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, So is it is it could it have been a matter of if you don't go check out that locked door, I'm going to or or is it this more plausible that she just goes and does it herself? Yeah, she might just feel like she has a looser boundary, I think, to do this because she is the only person who does know Harold on a personal level in the whole world, she says. You know, she might feel like she's more entitled to be able to do that and not ask for permission versus had it been just somebody else that's part of their council that maybe she thinks deserves that kind of respect. But she was just going with her gut. She's a type A kind of personality, take charge. Uh, She's not very cowardly and she just wanted answers. And I love the scene where she's just kind of coaching herself that, well, at the worst of this, if, if, if I'm wrong, I'm just a crazy pregnant woman and everything is still okay. I like that. Yeah, I love that. I love that too. And then she went in and, and and did what she did and she made her discoveries and she didn't really have any opportunity after that. People might have taken her more seriously had she had this kind of proof prior to, but she, you know, we know there was no proof for Stu to be able to feel like there's to warrant continuing investigating on on him and she knows him she babysat him and so she thought fuck it i'm just gonna go try it out for myself and see what's going on and it turned out to be fruitful well here's where my my own memory of the book starts to go off track because when she's in the basement she sees the surveillance station and she sees things that are clearly ied pipe bomb parts just someone alive right now would would see these pipes, BBs, nails, all these things on the same workbench are bad news. If you if you don't know this and you're listening to this and be like, that could be a very normal thing. No, no. <laughs> it's not. That person has bad ideas. But she sees this stuff and she's rightfully freaked out. The moment Harold 
pops his head around the corner. I'm honestly surprised as a book reader. Now, maybe it's just my bad memory, but all of a sudden I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen next. <laughs> things are things are much different than I than I thought were going to happen. Am I just not remembering? I mean, I know she breaks into his house in the book and she finds his ledger. Right, the ledger, which would have been the night before the Larry break-in was actually her break-in, right? Right, yeah. So like, so now there's two break-ins where there was only one break-in before, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? But this this was way different. Like, she wasn't locked in the basement. She was there. Yeah, right. In, the book. in right. the book, she was there at the house. And this is what makes me so excited about what's coming up is just that it's close enough that the spirit of the story is there, but he's telling it, or they're telling it, in a diff in a slightly twisted way. Now, all of a sudden, I'm like on the edge of my seat. I'm like, I'm not like checking off a list. Like, these things are the things that I expect to happen. No, it's like, well, I'm expecting this. It's kind of like that, but it's different. And now I'm biting my nails, which why else would you watch a TV if it's not to bring on that that sort of feeling? This is why adaptations are so good. If they're done to the spirit of the story as opposed to following it letter by letter, there are things that work on a screen better than on a page and vice versa. There's things on a page like the the Bobby Terry, you screwed it up. Hearing it on the screen was was great. But I mean, like reading it off the page, I could hear it in my brain. Hmm. But seeing Harold find her, the, the fear that all of that translated so much better on screen for me because you saw the tension, you saw the fear, you saw fear on both sides. He was discovered, he was found out, found out by the one person that he loved, that he you know thought he had a future with. So there's all this betrayal and, and things that only actors can convey. That's why I really like this adaptation. And I know it's, it's such a controversial thing with you know people who are purists to the book, but I feel that they've, they've strayed so close to the spirit of the book and the story that some of these these rewrites or these this is the adaptation part right they're, they're adapting it for tv works so well for me he wanted to spare franny in this moment where in the book he was just such a dick <laughs> she dies she dies right <laughs> yeah exactly and that's and that's literally the sentiment that he he had in his ledger he was going to kill her at one point to me this is like showing like there's like one little vestige of his humanity left and this is it like he's he's not going to have franny be the one to die that was his last hold on his own conscience, his own humanity. Yeah, really, that's it. I, I want to amend my my notes about the workbench and the bomb stuff. Okay, so dear listener, if you do find those things on someone's workbench, it's possible that you have someone that just has a messy workbench. But should you find it adjacent to a manifesto, uh -huh. then you're in trouble. A typewritten manifesto has no place. <laughs> and not for bench. anything, Harold's workspace was very neat. He just had all the stuff in jars. Right, right, right. Which was in very intentional. <laughs> yeah, you combine the surveillance gear, the bomb stuff, and the manifesto. And the locked basement, and the voyeurism camera. And... Bad, bad news. Bad news. <laughs> freaking news she was horrified at seeing the voyeurism camera but i mean i'm grateful that she had much more of a horrified reaction to all the other stuff seeing your bedroom on camera is is horrifying enough but to, to see the shrapnel and <laughs> oh, it's cringy but the voyeurism camera was not in the locked part of the basement like the secret double locked part compartment right so there she was in the the main area of the basement and then she has to go into the other room yeah, the second room, yeah. So, like, that was easily accessible to him, which is so much grosser. What about the arrogance, Inez, where he explains 
the whole plan to her. Whatever vestige of, of control he had over his mind and desire to remain normal in any other person's eyes, we saw it disintegrate <laughs> right then. He's totally a narcissist. He's so obsessed about being the smartest one, being the most clever one, being the one who's going to save the world. He even says, fix, I'm going to be the one to fix this whole world. I found it arrogant enough that I noticed, we know, when he increases the scope of their bombing project. I mean, a project manager, Harold, taking direction from Nadine, who's tied to her boss flag, saying, take out these five people. And then they've then he's decided, no, we're going to go ahead and take everybody out at the same time. And it's like, Come on, Carol, that's not the project scope. <laughs> you know, is that really necessary? Like, why Why do you have to kill the whole town? He actually doesn't even speak to Flag, So he's completely at the mercy of, of Nadine giving him the interpretation. And so that's got to weigh in on him. And, and now he has to kind of show Nadine that he's smarter than her. And I think that's why he increases the scope of their project and gets her on board with it because he's frustrated that he's not getting direction and maybe this act is going to get him the access to the guy who's in her head that he's taking directions from. Part of the relationship that Inez and I share is that she was my supervisor on several projects. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so um, the, very project uh, manager uh, heavy lingo. <laughs> uh-huh. I'm probably racy here, and this is not a efficient racy going on, Harold. <laughs> That's funny. Going back upstairs where uh, Larry and Nadine and all that is happening. Did you, either of you notice the movie that was playing in the background where Nadine was dropping off Joe at the school? I didn't know what the movie was. I was a little mortified to see and hear this kind of thing. And it's children that are all gathered around yeah, the screen. Yeah, that was wholly inappropriate. Uh, that was a movie that came, that came out in the 80s. I watched it a lot when I was about <laughs> Joe's age or smaller. It is <laughs> called uh, Time Bandits. It is a Terry Gilliam movie. Yes. Oh, my God. I did not. I, I watched that movie. I didn't get it. From the dialogue. The scene that was, this was at the very end, just before the climax. The guy, the the well, the semi-well-dressed man is evil personified. The the climax, the movie, uh, skip ahead if you haven't seen that movie and for some reason you're waiting around 40 years to watch a movie and um, don't want to be spoiled. God shows up and just kicks his ass in like one go. It's like no big deal. (laughs) (laughs) As God does, right? (laughs) Right. As strange as those scenes are to see him, you know, blowing up people on on the screen like he does evil. I feel that's got to be some hopeful foreshadowing to kind of give us a little bit of balance for what's about to happen at Abigail's house. Knowing that now, do you guys agree? <laughs> yeah, if, talking about evil coming and whatnot, yeah. It just, it just went whoo right over my head, though, when watching it. It was all throughout the episode, just this hint of the explosions. And then if you, you know, know the story and you know it's coming up, those kind of seem like little fun foreshadowing, even though it's awful. I just kind of filed that scene as contributing to that one one little footnote there is that even though god does kick evil's ass the protagonist of the show is this kid and the kid wakes up back home and then his house blows up so it is it is sort of a mixed message i guess (laughs) 
for us as viewers that have seen Time Bandits before. One point I wrote down a note, you know, did did Harold spare Stu out of empathy or cowardice? After I wrote it and we go into the next scene and we see Franny just like justifying why she's about to break in and do all her stuff. And you just see this contrast character where she's just so like brave and forward. And I I found the scenes helpful to kind of really emphasize the headspace of see who Harold is in, in comparison to to Fran. And, and it just adds to it. He's being is being a coward. He's putting this you know, having the, his light show from m- several miles away and then it's just going to sneak out in the dark of the night and then that's the end of that and it just kind of seems really appropriate that he's this weaselly character. Good animal. Yeah, I would say weasel also. Rat is also kind of in there, but weasel yeah. for sure. Weasel definitely fits because he's just... <laughs> but you can definitely see how the hatred between... Nadine and Harold is growing and it's really reaching a point in this in this episode where is it even like tenable that they can keep going together they just hate each other so much when he's so proud of his bomb and he shows it to Nadine and she's like we'll slim it down and we'll we'll find a a place for it and like the look on his face his face just melts into this you know puddle of deflation they're doing such a great job in ratcheting up tension between the Boulderites you know between Nadine and Harold we're just we're just stuck between a rock and a hard place like we, we we know that these are our villains they hate each other they clearly hate each other they're just using each other to get to the the means to an end and i also found it very cocky that nadine thinks that flag is telling her everything it was cocky but it was also sort of cool uh the moment we, you know because harold's trying to shake her yeah well it's just more evidence of just how much they hate each other and she's like nah <laughs> you know, she's just knocking him down at every peg that she possibly can, and he just keeps fighting back like like a wheat, like a mongoose, like what is it? Or a ferret? A ferret keeps coming back. Um, I mean, some kind of rodent. Yeah, but sure. like, just a weasel, you know. So just wrote in my notes of like that Nadine is feeling very cocky and Harold really hasn't had any communication with Flag that we've seen other than that one dream way back when. There's been nothing to indicate mm. that he gets yes. signals. Good call. That's right. They haven't shown it to us, so we should we shouldn't assume. You know, I'm confident that they're they're showing us what they're showing us for reasons this is part of what inez said earlier about harold wanting to be the smartest person in the room and he's using everything within his power to try to affirm that the fact that they could work together as much as they have as much as they hate each other i'm just surprised that they got as much done in the time that they did the fruits of their labor at abigail's house this is a, if, if I recall correctly anyway, a change from the book that I'm not sure that I love. Maybe I'm just remembering the miniseries and thinking that's the book. Because what I remember is Nick trying to run away with the bomb rather than just the bomb going off after most people have, most everybody has left the house, which is what we got in this episode. I want to say that that sounds about right. Nick is one of my favorite characters in the book, though, so I'm going to be very, I'm going to be extra sensitive to how this scene played out. It was missing more heart um, (laughs) and shock on that front because we really haven't been able to see a ton out of Nick till now. We've got little bits that we've seen and, you know, throughout, we know he has a significant role, but there's just so much more to Nick than I think that they've been able to portray by this point 
<laughs> I feel like Nick clearly does not survive being at the epicenter of this massive explosion that could be seen from several miles away up the hill. So I can feel like it's safe to assume that he, if he did survive, it's going to be in pieces and not for very long. I cried in the book, so I feel like I was owed <laughs> that kind of emotional impact. Right? Yeah. Yes. And I don't think that I got that here, but I'm, I'm still here. I'm still on board. I'm still going to continue watching it. Well, a, a heroic death being replaced with the wrong place, wrong time death, at least the way I saw things, isn't isn't quite a fair swap. He's kind of fallen by the wayside a little bit up until this point. He wasn't used much these last, what, two episodes or so. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like they could have done a little bit better by Nick. I feel that, you know, Inez is, is right in saying that he, he deserved better. We deserve better for him. I'm sad that, that it wasn't portrayed in a more honorable way, the way that it was framed in the book. So it's one of the things that I'm just, I'm not happy about, but... I'm sure there's a reason for it. I'm willing and hoping for episode seven, eight or nine to, to show us why this death made more sense than the heroic running away with the bomb death that I think I remember from the book and Rob Lowe. <laughs> so far, we've been saying that the decisions that the adapters, uh, Owen King and, and others, Josh Boone uh, have been making have been things that we agree with. And so that means they've earned a certain amount of my faith for storytelling prowess. So I'm going to give them some benefit of the doubt here. I just, man, I, I didn't see Nick going out in a whoops kind of way. While they might have swapped the hypnosis, it'd be like he was using his like voice of God powers to like suck in the energy of the bomb or something. <laughs> <laughs> mm. I feel, Yeah, I do agree. I think that there's going to be some explanation or some resolution to the change. Um, it, it, there hasn't been anything that's kind of been left unsolved or unexplained so far, and I don't think that this would be left out there. What do you think about his note, Silencio, the card that he left on the nightstand? I, I saw it on my little phone. <laughs> I, saw <that> he, <laughs> I saw that he had written that, and that had me scratching my head. I'm like, what did he mean by that? He was leaving it for her. He did not yet know that she was found, because that happened out on the porch, and that's why everyone started to leave the house. Ray Brentner comes in to tell him that she was found, and that's when he puts it on the nightstand. Did you catch what was the picture on the card, Paul, on your little phone view? <laughs> I did not. It's a man looking out to sea, and it's got, like, the sunset kind of horizon. So, And then it says Silencio in the middle of it, and it's just his uh, art piece that he made. Uh, I think they made it obvious that he was the one that was that had draw drawn it. We were speculating that this is a hint that he had some kind of intuitiveness of, to know that it was coming, that his time was coming, coming possibly at a subconscious, maybe not a hundred percent sure. We went back and paused on it and looked at it to try to figure out what is the significance of this card. And that's all we can come up with. So that's our theory is that maybe somehow he was given this little warning like minutes before it happened. I've gone a little differently in just the well, I guess a lot differently in that I don't know if it's some if, if it's a thing that people do, but he's sort of a spiritual guy. Uh, the idea of creating a card for a person that you fully expect to be dead already doesn't sound wacky in the sense of like a, you know a, a narrative. I, I don't know if people do that in real life, but if someone did that 
in a book or a movie, you'd be like, well, okay, that makes sense, I guess. And that's what I, that's the little assumption that I got out of it. But I like yours better because that seems to work with kind of the spirituality a little bit more since he did have that element with her. That's how they communicated, right? Was on some other level besides speech. Right. They were in that like dream space where he can speak and talk to her. And yeah. Yeah. So there's definitely that piece of him. You know, Nick Andrews is a very, very intelligent man and he's a brilliant uh, strategist when you're reading the books. And this show so far, I feel like focuses a lot on the empathy, compassion, and maybe building more up on the spiritual side of it. And I think that's also why I'm like internally, it was just hurting a little bit because it's like you know, they emphasize like, oh, he's dumb right julie's talking about this guy who can't speak can't hear and he's dumb and they the, the societal emphasis of people that couldn't speak you know they say they're they're deaf and dumb was the expression for for a long time and they kept kind of emphasizing that on nick and the fact that he ends up kind of be this core centerpiece in the development direction and a lot of the the mo very clever kind of organization on the boulder side came from him along with the five but some really key pieces came from him and I feel like they didn't get to showcase his intelligent contributions instead of just focusing on the spiritual contributions. Well, I mean, I think we're all in agreement there that there were a lot of things they did right with Nick. And it, I mean, as the story goes, this was his time to, to exit. But perhaps they could have given us a little more with Nick. Episode seven is coming up. We are in the, the back third now, seven, eight, nine. That's it for the show. A lot of stuff has to happen still. This is the first episode where they've been willing to to take some some key moments and really make a a, a big change. That might suggest that seven, eight, nine will have more than just Stephen King's new quote unquote coda added to it, but maybe more little changes here and there to come. Uh, what do you guys expect to happen in the next, say, half an hour of TV? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think Trash Cans Man is going to go on his mission and uh, procure different incendiary devices. That's a good bet. That is a, that is a very <laughs> solid bet. Well, now we get to see Nadine and Harold's journey, whatever's coming up for them next. My assumption um, of all the context clues here is that she's going to go see her man. Harold's longevity is something that I've questioned since the beginning because uh, without giving unnecessary spoilers for book readers, his longevity is different than other characters. I was wondering if his is going to be manipulated by the by the storytellers to give him a different outcome, I guess, than than he had in the book. So I'm on the, I'm on the uh, uh, lookout for what happens on their journey together. I hope I didn't use enough obfuscating language there to make that message totally <laughs> incomprehensible. No, not at all. No, because, well, Harold's end is one of the least satisfying parts of the, the book for me. So I'm hoping that he gets an update. Yeah, or something. I mean, King does that in his books where he has people that are very present villains for a short period of time, but they're not actually the villain. There are books where that little sub-villain basically dies off camera. <laughs> That's just it. Yeah. You know, and he does that, and he's pretty unapologetic about it, I think, because he keeps doing it. This has been a lot of fun this week, having our discreetly honed discussion on episode six of The Stand. Look forward to talking with you guys next week. 
Yeah, sounds good. Yeah. Gotta, gotta know what happens now. The fallout from the explosion. Gotta know. I want some more orgy scenes. Damn it. <laughs> right. Right. What's one elevator of blood? Get that shit cleaned up. Get the orgy you back know, going. They, they called the best janitor in Mr. M-O-O-N. It's interesting that they that the crow woman, what do you call rat woman? Rat woman, yeah. Rat woman eyed that up and she's like, you know what? This is a six janitor job. <laughs> <laughs> Well, she knows that, like, you know, one really good one could handle the puke fountain deal. And, uh, you know, the buckets of blood definitely needs uh, six. That's so that's some good project management skills on her part. Yeah. That's resource allocation. Uh, maybe some history and facilities management as well. Some sort of logistical training. I'd yeah, say. Some, something. She didn't, she didn't just show up and know how to be rat woman. <laughs> no, she pulled out that standard operating procedure and got the yeah. got work done. Maybe some... Yeah, there was maybe some on-the-job training, but yeah. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking for something in a rat woman. What are your qualifications? Uh, something with black feathers. I need to look like a crow by night and a rat by day. Right. <laughs> Have you ever gone through a crow in right. <laughs> That was pretty silly, but now it's time to get serious with our interview with director Chris Fisher. We've been teasing this for a while. He directed episodes five and six. We talked to him weeks ago we talked to him for episode two but we had so much fun talking about his episodes we knew that if we released his interview it would spoil way too much so we had to wait until now to give you guys access to this fantastic interview with a creative mind a great guy and a guy that really really loves bringing you buckets of blood so this is our interview with chris fisher this is Paul. And I'm Sheila. And we have a special guest on the Stand podcast this week. Uh, the podcast, which I don't know if you if you saw, Sheila, but I've renamed it to the Boulder Free Zone Radio. I saw, yes. and I thought that was ingenious. Thank you. Thank you. Our special treat today is that we have director Chris Fisher with us. How are you doing today, Chris? I'm good, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. Entirely our pleasure. Thanks for making the time to sit with us during this uh, holiday season. It can be tough to find <laughs> spare time. Yeah, I think uh, it either goes one way or the other. I, I, I'm actually in lockdown in Toronto, uh, away from my family, so I could give a podcast every day. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, yeah. we might take you up on that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's tough. Um, I'm on one of these shows that are prepping during uh, the lockdown here in Toronto, so it's uh, it's pretty wild. Are the um, COVID standards and practices, I guess, are they pretty uniform across the industry, or does it matter if you're in Canada versus the United States? Or you know, um, there's a baseline. Um, so the, the DGA, the and SAG, IATSE, um, they've set a um, sort of minimum standard of back to work requirements. Uh, so the studios then uh, can actually raise those standards, uh, and obviously any country or province can also raise those standards. So everyone is sort of meeting a, a similar baseline, but Canada uh, has much stricter requirements than um, at least any state that I'm aware of. So we're we're actually forced to meet those as well. So I've been here for in Toronto. For about three months, uh, and I've been in lockdown uh, the entire time, including a, a two-week full um, quarantine in my in my apartment. But even for the last three months, 
Um, like let's say, for example, I had a friend come over to have a beer. Uh, it, it, that would be a minimum $10,000 fine unless that friend happened to be a family member. So it's pretty strict up here in Canada. Um, and I'm pretty sure that goes for uh, British Columbia, uh, Vancouver as well. And if you mess up, Tom Cruise will come and ream you out. <laughs> oh Can you imagine? It? No I mean, pressure. Uh, no pressure. Uh, yeah, I mean, they always say, you know, directors are screamers. I mean, that uh, I think he, uh, he, Christian Bale may have missed a match. I was going to say, I think that's like Christian Bale level right there. What he did? Uh, yeah, it was nuts. Uh, <laughs> so no threatening to fire anyone, I guess, for anything. No, I mean, I guess that's like you know, there's so many new challenges. Um, shooting COVID, I think it's actually going to be a really rewarding time. And I know that sounds a little odd, but I mean, for the people that are able to work in this environment, it's a really great opportunity to be uh, leaders um, and, uh, and, and inspire people. And there's an acute focus on the power of art and, and making a piece of art in a collaborative sense. And the kind of daily words of encouragement that it's are sort of that come naturally when you're you're on a set uh, for most, uh, you know, directors and, and producers, you know, they're really hard to do now because, you know, everyone's suffering, you know, and everyone's struggling, but, you know, so you really have to dig deep to give that inspiration and be that type of a leader. And uh, so it's, it's a really great learning experience. I'm learning a lot about myself and uh, what I'm capable of doing. And, and I think, you know, that goes for the whole, whole crew and uh, the, the show I'm working on, which I, I can't really uh, mention at this point, but uh, the cast hasn't shown up yet, but I, I know that's going to be a whole nother level of learning how to communicate. I mean, some of the things that we take for granted on the film set are that when someone does a good job, whether it's a PA or the number one on the cast, uh, you know, you smile. Uh, it, people see everyone smiling when, when the scene goes well, everyone smiles and, uh, you know, that's taken away. And, <laughs> you know, some of the best direction isn't through a megaphone. It's the very quiet personal suggestion or whisper even. And again, though that, that opportunity as a director is taken away. So it's really, you know, we're really learning a whole new skill set. I, I would say the closest thing I could compare it to would be, you know, there's often uh, closed sets uh, for, for nudity or for, you know, certain uh, high danger stunts. And like, everything kind of has that heightened level of seriousness. There's some pros and cons to that, of course, but it's, it's, it's definitely a challenge. And again, I think the people who um, are able to work during this time um, are going to find when we meet these challenges, which I know we will, uh, you know, it, 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 it's going to be really re rewarding. I was kind of wondering about that in terms of mm, trying, I don't even know. I haven't looked into this completely because I don't have those connections, but I kind of assumed that there might be a subtle shift in the kinds of stories that can be told or how they're told based on these new restrictions and things like how many people can be on set and how many people can be in a scene and all that and, and trying to manage the COVID restrictions economically for the studios. Like I just kind of made up the idea like, well, we might see things like more two person shots, less crowds, you know, that, that kind of stuff. Is that, am I making that up or, or are you seeing that those kinds of changes? Uh, absolutely. You're not making that up. If you knew the amount of time that we have spent discussing the intricacies uh, and, um, execution of something as simple as 
two people high-fiving, uh, <laughs> whether, whether we can even do that anymore. I mean, crowd scenes have become this VFX tiling digi-double nightmare. Um, you know, the, so yeah, I mean, um, everything has changed. All that's changed. I mean, intimacy scenes, uh, the, the danger and risk of having two actors together like that. But, you know, again, there's there's things that are you can kind of see a mile away. Wow, that'd be really hard. A crowd scene, intimacy scenes, stunts, anything that requires doubling and touching and, and contact. But even just, you know, a simple two-hander at a dining room table, how close can they be? You know, can they really be eating? So all these things are a um, big part of the new reality of, of working during this. Um, but again, I think, you know, and I hate to, I don't want to sound too... Uh, uh, glass half full, but it's kind of bringing everyone together, and it's and it's reminding people of how much we love this and what we're willing to do to continue uh, storytelling in a collaborative way. And sort of the power of of these stories we tell um, has the at least the um, potential of having so much more impact right now. And um, it's overwhelming at times, certainly challenging, but um, so far it's, I see a light at the end of the tunnel that is is, is going to be the those of us who've worked through this and, and been able to still make a, a, a good piece of art are, are going to come out of this with a, 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 you know, a, a memory that we'll have forever. Well, we're very grateful for the efforts that you're doing because definitely in the last nine months, TV and movies, this, this genre of art has really become a companion to everyday life. Yeah. You know, we share swap stories back and forth and different Facebook posts of, of what are we watching now? You know, what is something that we need to, to find and catch up on? So we appreciate the fact that you are keeping this moving forward. Definitely. Well, I mean, I'm grateful for the opportunity. Otherwise, we'd be scraping, man, trying to find. All right. I guess I'll, I'll like watch digging, Airwolf. Or... You know, dig through my old DVD collection. Right. Yeah, yeah no, right, totally. We'll go back to labor discs or something. Right. Well, I think we'll probably end up touching more COVID-related stuff since it's so cheerful and happy and everybody loves to hear it. Um, but let's, let's start with your background a little bit, Chris. Um, we looked you up. And I was surprised to find that you went to USC law school um, and wound up in the movies. Was it just like... We're intrigued. Yeah, we're very intrigued. I don't want to make any assumptions. How did you you make that shift? I went to USC uh, with the intention of being a filmmaker. Uh, Early in my life, I I really wanted to focus on screenwriting. uh, And I really wanted to become a screenwriter. You know, so I was sort of the kid who, at 12 years old, you know, uh, lied and said I was, I think I think had to be 15 at the time to be an usher, but I got a job uh, working at Edwards Theaters in Orange County, you know, as an usher and, uh, you know, got free movies and free stale popcorn and uh, bad diet sodas. But I also got endless movies, you know, got my imagination sparked by that. So many filmmakers tell this story, but, it, you know, it really is the ability to kind of lock yourself in the, the womb of cinema. As a kid working at a movie theater, especially, I, I worked at this one theater called Edwards Big Newport, which is just this fantastic screen and crazy sound. And it shaped me uh, and made me uh, want to spend my life doing it. And I didn't know how. So I went to SC, undergraduate, hoping to um, get into the screenwriting program and uh, don't, took as many classes as I could in the film department, ended up getting a major, however, in philosophy. And um, I was at USC during the Rodney King riots and, and the, the sort of the first time the city of L.A. turned into um, protest. And uh, that just really shaped me. And not that I was willing to give up 
becoming an artist and uh, a screenwriter. But, you know, I just witnessing that and, uh, you know, being a, a white male from a, a position of privilege, uh, I just felt really moved by it. And so I kind of my senior year, I was just like, you know, I could, you know, either go try to find a job as a PA and um, and pull cables. Um, or I said, let, let me see if I apply to law school and if I get into a top 10 school, then I'd go. And that's what happened. So I kind of started SC Law School, never with the intention of being a lawyer uh, in the sort of career sense of the word, but ended up loving law school. It was sort of like the liberal arts education that I always wish I had, uh, you know, what the law ought to be, you know, even something as seemingly born as tax law, you're discussing who should pay for social services and how should the government pay for things like, you know, the military and all these things. So you're, it, it really kind of was a applied philosophy and, and really helped shape my view of the world and, you know, where I saw myself inside of it. But when I finished law school, I knew I, or I guess I kind of, you know, the idealism I had as a 21 year old has got it out the window already as a 24 year old and uh i was like well you know i do want to change the world but uh that's a that's a tall task and l let me start off making some horror movies real quick and um <laughs> so the first job i had after uh law school was actually at william morris i got a job in the the william morris training program and started in the mail room and um kind of climbed up from that it seems like your credits do revolve around genre movies for the most part. I'd say at least greater than half <laughs> of the work that you've produced or written or directed has been something where a ghost might show up. Yeah, no, I definitely love genre. I, I look up to genre for me, the sort of holy trinity of sort of science fiction, fantasy, and horror is, I guess that's pretty much all that I'm interested in. Um, I've directed some television that doesn't maybe fall into that category, but for me, kind of crime always sneaks in there as well, especially if I can give it a noir slant. But um, yeah, for sure. So those were the movies that I loved as a kid. Those are the filmmakers I sort of looked up to, um, and that's what I wanted to do. The first project I ever got off the ground was called Taboo, and it was uh, sort of 10 Little Indians meets House of Yes, that, uh, again, a, a script that I sold, and um, the producer wanted to make it in Romania. And I was like, hey, you know, I, I got this thing called this law degree. Maybe I can help as a producer. So I kind of I wiggled my way from just being the screenwriter into a, a producing job. The director was this guy, Max Mikowski, who had done this movie at Sundance called The Pigeon Egg Strategy, which I just loved. So I kind of was there learning from Max, and that was a movie that got into Sundance and got into the Sundance Midnight Madness section. I think I was 29 at that time. So um, that was a great start, and I learned a lot from, from Max and working on that film. And so the next project that I wrote, again, another genre piece. This is Night Stalker uh, based on uh, the true crime uh, exploits of Richard Ramirez. Once I had uh, finished that script, I attached myself as a director, and as luck would have it, that movie got into Sundance again the next year. Uh, so I had those kind of two movies that started at Sundance, both in the Midnight Madness section, both uh, horror movies, and um, everything I ever dreamed for I had at the time I was 30, and I was like, wow, this is awesome. That is pretty cool. It's uh, are you trying to build like your own Blumhouse uh, empire? <laughs> I mean, if I knew back then the value, I mean, I, you know, you know, like you know, genres. Uh, this is you know, we're talking, you know, this is uh, Night Soccer was two thousand three and Taboo was two thousand two. It didn't really get the respect back then that it does now. Uh, you know, there wasn't GDT out there, uh, you know, getting Oscars for making horror or magical realism movies, uh, you know, and 
Fangoria was a big supporter of mine and, 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 and me a big supporter of them, but, you know, it was still kind of, it was really sort of niche. And, um, I, you know, Mar they weren't making the big Marvel movies then. There was there was none of this sort of stuff that you know now where it's the A list movie making is, is 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 you know which we consider the genre category. But not really back then. It was more indie uh, and more low budget. Yeah, I mean, if if I could knew I could have been a mogul, I would have. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess like the first one I really have is is on the timing of the release of the stand. Like we we can go back and ask more questions about the the creative process. But I, I guess I wanted to know does the fact that there's a global pandemic raging right now help or hurt the release of the stand? Gosh, you know, I think if people knew obviously people who are fans of Stephen King and fans of the book know where it's going. So I think they're excited about it. Uh, I think the buy-in is tough and I and I would see that obviously they're hoping to to create new fans of Stephen King and, and, and the book and the miniseries. And I could see how that, how the decision, you know, with so many things to watch, the decision to click on that right now might seem like a reach. But, you know, of, of the, you know, many things that um, the showrunners, Ben Cavell and, and Taylor Elmer have said in the, in the press, uh, I really agree with them that it's, you know, or at least their vision of the book was that it's not a pandemic miniseries. And, and, and that was their interpretation. And for better or worse, uh, you know, to get through those chapters and get into more of the, the fable, for lack of a better word, of the themes, then, you know, I think people would and should sort of buy in for that. But yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting to see if people can get through the first few episodes, uh, because like any uh, epic, uh, there's many different chapters and styles. And, you know, even though it does sort of open up with a sort of dystopian Walking Dead-ish sort of vibe, uh, it really changes. Uh, uh, and it changes dramatically in my episodes. And even though I haven't seen the rough cuts, I would think that even changes again dramatically uh, for Vincenzo's uh, final episodes. There's a lot of different genres and vibes here that you might not guess what is coming by just watching the premiere. Um, if you do stick around, I think you're going to be very rewarded uh, and maybe even surprised. The ones I've seen, I, I haven't felt like the superflu bits have been overdone like belabored um you know they're they're parts of the flashback scenes and it is somewhat exaggerated the way that the people are are bloating at the neck and all that kind of stuff mm -hmm. i think it, i think it's easier for me anyway but i am a king fan so i guess i might have that to <laughs> fess up to <laughs> but i think it's easier to make a that this is tv type connection you know for as much as i like to get into tv i can also shift my brain to the this is just tv for the the parts that i need to in order to get through a story that i want to see i hope that the audience can do that too because there's a lot that i've seen that i really have enjoyed and a lot of good work and i hate and i hate for someone just to be stricken by pandemic input uh to the point where they w wouldn't even consider watching yeah I, I agree um i think um episode two uh, again i haven't seen and i'll, I'll just make this clear uh, you know i haven't seen any of the final cuts of anything except for one which i watched during the premiere with the, uh, the cast and crew but i have seen director's cuts of the first six 
and episode two was directed by this guy Tucker Gates. Uh, and, and episode two was a really big, expansive episode, um, and it, it hit on I know a couple of the you know I think fan favorite parts of the book, and uh, certain things were adjusted to to make things work. But again, it's it's a real big cinematic epic episode. Um, I, I think that has an expansive quality, which already takes you away from the sort of pandemic stuff and, and really puts you into the characters that I think you know that's what always make a, a Stephen King project a Stephen King project is is these grounded relatable characters uh, you know even in something as as far out and phantasmagoric as uh, the stand yeah the episode two we get new characters we get like an expansion on Randall Flagg and what he's up to uh, the Lloyd sequence and really just the illness is is mostly you know the little bit with his cellmate and then the hospital scene but that's about it a little coughing you know here mm-hmm. here here and there but beyond that it's more like what happens to the rest of us as we experience the fall essentially you know the i called them the uh corporate commandos <laughs> chasing uh larry and rita through through manhattan and or wherever they're at yeah so the filming took place uh, from September 2019 through March 2020, right on the cusp of what we're living through at the moment. Yeah. So where were you directing your episodes in that timeline? Because I, I imagine there would be a very different feel from, say, September 2019 yeah. when this wasn't even a thing. And, I mean, everything got shut down in March, so. Yeah, it was nuts. I mean, I, I mean, like the whole experience for me was really unbelievable. I was actually directing the series finale of The Magicians up in Vancouver, which was a very emotional experience. Uh, it, you know, it was a kind of very beloved five-year series where the cast and crew had, had truly become, uh, you know, my, my best friends, my family, uh, however you want to put it. Um, but in the middle of that process, I got a call from an agent and said, hey, you know, the stand, which because I had actually, when the stand got announced, uh, I had reached out to my agent and said, hey, just so you know, this would be like the dream of my life. <laughs> um, and and uh, they're like, yeah, we know, we know, we already, we had that already pinned, but, you know, I, I think it's going to be, it's going to be really hard to get this for you. And I go, I get it. I go, but I, I, if I didn't tell you it was my dream. I, 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 there's no chance of me getting it. So just putting it out there. This is my dream job and, and we'll talk later. And that was like, I didn't hear from him for six months. Um, but, but in the middle of directing the, it was literally like the hardest day. I get this call and say, hey, you remember the stand? I'm like, yeah. And uh, she's like, a director dropped out. Can you go have dinner with the showrunners tonight? And I was like, literally like setting up this scene on a cliff and there's, you know, cranes and drones. And I was like, yes, I can. And uh, I sort of just pause on that. I don't even know how I did it. And like, I showed up to this dinner, like so ragged. Anyways, I just sat down and uh, it was Ben Cavell and uh, Taylor Elmore. And I I had a prior relationship with Taylor. Uh, I directed before for him. So, you know, that was good to have that shorthand. But, um, you know, so it just, it came to me last second. And and I I had um, a family back in California who I had hadn't seen for a long time and i was we were gonna have like our first christmas together in in eight years and all this stuff and and i just you know the job it came to me and i just jumped and luckily had the support of my wife she's like i know this is your dream go do it uh we got this for you and so i literally didn't even leave vancouver i just went straight i I finished shooting 
the magicians. Uh, the next day, I started prep on the stands. Carl Franklin, I think, is the, the director who had backed out. And honestly, I hadn't read the book since high school. Uh, so I like sent, sent one of the PAs, one of the magicians, to go get me the, the unabridged version and just started cranking through it. That was in November. Uh, I started prepping in November. Uh, no sign of COVID, obviously, uh, November 2019. And um, started shooting in December. And, and over the Christmas break, you know, of course, there was, you know, that was some of the beginning rumblings of what was going on and what does this mean and all the Trumpisms and stuff like that. And so came back up to Vancouver to continue shooting after the holiday break. And um, that's when it really started becoming a reality. And uh, it was really sort of just like, Perfect, because I, I one of the great things that I got to do on the stand is I got to introduce uh, New Vegas. Uh, New Vegas was sort of uh, was very kind of un, un, underdeveloped by the time I got there. Uh, and, you know, if you had to say what's the most impossible thing to do and one of the most hardest things, impossible things to do would be to how do you shoot Vegas in Vancouver during winter? <laughs> and, uh, you, know, uh. you know, it was just one of those challenges I just like, you know, just fun with. But we kind of started shooting New Vegas right when the pandemic started really being real. And I wrapped and, and handed over the reins to uh, Vincenzo uh, Natale, who did seven and eight. You know, he and I became uh, uh, good friends during the, uh, this process and uh, just kept in touch with him. But then what happened is I had to, they, they had some, a couple of new scenes and a couple of scenes that had to be shot, not from my episodes. One scene from the pilot and a couple of uh, smaller moments from three and four. So they asked if I would come back up and, and shoot those. This was like a full-blown pandemic. And I think I shot the last scene of the entire project, except for some second unit Vegas stuff they did. Uh, the last scene of the entire project was um, a scene that was in the pilot it was crazy. And that was just like, you know, everyone was like scrambling. No one knew what was going on. And I literally got the shot and basically got on a plane. And I was the last person. Uh, uh, that was the last day you could actually get out of Vancouver without restrictions. Wow. Yikes. Like last man off the plane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, wow. it was uh, you know, that was, you know, deep into March. And um, it was really unbelievable. Because uh, a lot of it, too, like, you know, is, you know, these scenes are, they happen so slowly until they happen so fast, you know, which is part of way Captain's trips is so elegantly and is suspensefully introduced in the novels. Um, and that was sort of, that was really what was going on for us. We're like, is this real? Like, what is this? Like, what is the, what, you know, is it, should we, I'm like, are we still shooting? Like, are we really making this right now? Like, this can't be real. You know, like, you know, like, suddenly you look Right, like you know, I, I keep expecting to look over my DP, and his neck starts like puffing out like a, <laughs> like, a like a toad or something. But uh, <laughs> luckily, you know, you know, luckily the whole you know our entire cast and crew stayed healthy. And, and but yeah, then you know, editing was even just as weird because like we never start editing. It was like, oh my god, like and then we were like deep into it, and you know, I didn't make any adjustments in my director's cut for the reality of uh, of, of COVID nineteen. Um, I'm not sure if the showrunners did or not, but um. They it was wild, and I know Vincenzo had to edit entirely from uh, Toronto. He was he he was actually supposed to. We were supposed to do a little small 
uh, Vegas unit. I was hoping to shoot a couple moments. I know Vincenzo was going to shoot a couple moments. Uh, Jake Braver, our uh, VFX coordinator or producer, uh, he was going to shoot a couple moments. Um, and of course, that all kind of got scrapped. Somehow during the pandemic, they shot a, send a very small unit out there to pick up some plate shots that were absolutely necessary to make it. But there was more Vegas second unit uh, shooting plan that that didn't happen due to COVID, and and Vincenzo once he got back home to Toronto, he he, he hasn't left, and he's he's still up, actually up here right now. Wow, that sounds like you probably ran through like plans A through K, <laughs> trying to sort that out, um, just day to day, um, moving from what was yesterday's plan to today, uh, new reality, just trying to get the work done. I have a. Uh, I guess a, a style question who made the call to adopt a time jumping flashback based narrative rather than just a linear approach. I only know what I have read in the press. I wasn't one of the, the directors hired initially. I, I, I came into fill in when the director fell out. So right place, right time, lucky moment for me. Um, so, I, you know, I only know what I've read and sort of what I've heard from Ben and Taylor, um, so, I mean, I, I believe it was a showrunner decision. I have never uh, met or spoken to Josh, uh, uh, but I know he developed the project for, for years, as well as, uh, you know, Jill Killington and, and Nate Lee, who were his, I think, partners, you know, for years on this. And then I, my episodes were actually written by Jill and Nate. Uh, so I got to know them pretty well. And from everything I've heard, uh, yeah, it was, it, was some, it was a decision made before COVID happened. Um, and it just was sort of consistent with their vision that, you know, this wasn't a pandemic project. It, it, it was an epic battle between good and evil for the soul of America. And, and these two rival camps and groups of characters, they, they wanted to just find a way to get to them as soon as possible. You know, I think some people, you know, the, I know I've read a lot of the reviews which are mixed and, you know, some people like that approach and some people don't like that approach. It does have the benefit of doing exactly what they wanted. It does get you to the characters sooner. Um, you know, I think the price to pay uh, is uh, some suspense and some tension and some sort of slow burn horror, not horror. That it's not, you know, I don't think there's anything in this project that at least that i've seen that's really sort of seat jumpery but there is this slow burn some overarching sense of dread you know like sauron watching over and and um you know from at least from from watching the premiere which i think did so many things right uh, i was missing that a little bit that is one of the uh, side effects of, of of that sort of lost uh, like uh uh, nonlinear structure. Maybe we can make a point, Sheila, in the podcast of telling people that just because they got to Boulder doesn't mean anything. Right. <laughs> well, yeah. It's uh, it doesn't end in Boulder, folks. <laughs> you know, for me, by far the most interesting storytelling that I was able to do was the conflict of the characters in Boulder as they were sort of trying to make this decision, trying to decide who they were and, and what they were about, and, and they were trying to make their stand. So, um, you know, yeah, I think it only just really starts. I mean, you can only really get to that once you've got them to Boulder. And, and you know, obviously I'm, I'm speaking specifically of Harold and Nadine, uh, played, I think, amazingly by, by Owen Teague and Amber Heard. For me, those were the, the most exciting moments I had on set is, is watching these characters feel pulled in both directions and really be torn about who they were, what they wanted, and, and how they were going to get there. 
every character goes through that on this show. And um, I was lucky to have uh, to really have my episodes focus on the arcs, the turning points for them. We know from press that's come out about the show that Stephen King himself rewrote what he called, I guess, the coda to the story. And I don't want any information about it. (laughs) (laughs) I never read it. I never read it. All right, good. Yeah, Uh, yeah. But I guess then maybe to your knowledge, are any changes to the story um, resulting from needing to have give uh, people a fresh ending to the to this to a story that's been around for twenty or thirty years? Uh, Sheila and I don't like to do the math because it's too long. Um, <laughs> but are are there there any of those those seeds that have to be planted in say your episodes in order f- to fulfill that new bit of story at the end? Uh, not that I was aware of or not that I was discussed with the, the showrunners or the writers. Uh, I think the only thing, and it's probably not a spoiler about that, is that it, you know, I know it is very character-driven. And it's something that I believe Stephen had had in his, his mind for a while and it's something that he felt that was just a thread that was left untouched. But I, that would just be conjecture. I mean, I, I, I didn't read it. So I know the, the, the way the project was set up with directors, that each director got a two episode block except for tucker gates who just got episode two and josh uh started off the series uh so he came in and directed episode one and episode nine at the same time so that was his block but even though i was given rough cuts and director's cuts of one two three and four i never saw a rough cut of nine and uh, I think for obvious reasons, they were uh, being very, both very protective about it, uh, but also really taking their time with it and really wanting to make sure that they found every nuance and, and polished it the right way. I'm excited to see it, too. I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, I'm really excited to see the last three episodes. I, I think Vincenzo is, uh, I mean, all the directors on the show are so great. You know, Josh, Tucker, um, Bridget Savage Cole and Daniel Crudy, they, they directed um, episodes three and four. They'd done this independent movie, Blow the Man Down, and they were fantastic. I got to visit them on set a lot because I was prepping while they were shooting. So I would come to set and just hang out with them and watch them work. And uh, they were like this two-headed monster director team. It was just <laughs> awesome. Uh, and they were just uh, really cool. And I know they killed it. Uh, their director's cuts were fantastic. But while I was shooting, I got uh, Vincenzo was prepping. So uh, Vincenzo would come and hang out with me on set and we shared in the sort of creation of new vegas and sort of the crazy sort of giallo world of this sort of heightened gore horror sort of flag blood fest and i I think he probably hit it out of the ballpark that would be my guess he he has this sort of rosemary's baby storyline that i you know if you know his work at all splice and stuff like he's not afraid of body horror or anything kind of really pushing the limits so I guess it's going to be pretty rad. Now we're going to have to add Giallo to our, uh, like a glossary on our, on our post. So the people will know what you're talking about. That's a, that's a, that's a film school term. That's a, (laughs) that's not a TV watcher term. Uh, Well, I, I did a couple of slasher movies, you know, Night Stalker, Hillside Strangler. And so, you know, Giallo and, you know, Dario Gento, a lot of that Italian sort of B horror film is sort of, that's my bread and butter. Your DNA. My, yeah. So I, I guess if I was that combined with sort of, low budget noir as sort of my my melting pot so to speak but yeah the you know the the we all know the chapters of the book that uh you know the hand of god and all these things and you know my guess is that 
the grand finale that uh, Vincenzo presents is going to be uh, nothing uh, short of mind-blowing. Well, that is quite a preview, because once people read what giallo means, then they'll, then I think their expectations are going to be heightened for maybe a bloodbath. Who knows? We'll see <laughs> in episodes eight or uh, seven and eight. I took a swing, that's for sure. I, I had this amazing... So I got to... Uh, one of my favorite actors who I've done two movies with is uh, Clifton Collins Jr. And, you know, he's uh, just become a, a brother of mine. So I got to hire him to play Bobby Terry. My scene with him and, and Alex uh, uh, Skarsgård is just is as epic and out of control. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I pushed it. I, I, and, and, and it was funny. I thought I had pushed it too far and Alex came over to me and says, Hey, how about I do this? And I was like the grossest thing I'd ever heard. And I was like, that is so awesome. Can you please do that? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, we just, we went for it. I mean, I don't know how many buckets of blood were dumped in, uh, in, that, in that scene, but, but a lot. Um, I mean, it was really fun. I mean, it, you know, it, my episodes really got to transition. And, uh, and, and I think more than the first four, you know, I was really playing in, 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 in not only a Shiela, but also in a sort of magical realism sandbox. I mean, I got to introduce Flag. I mean, Flag was teased, but, you know, I took us to Vegas and introduced his casino and, all of this crazy stuff. Um, you know, I, one of the, I read a couple of reviews like, Oh, you know, it feels uneven. And I don't know what they're really talking about, but like certainly Frodo walking through Hobbit land and certain Frodo walking <laughs> to get rocking through Mordor are different scenes. Of course they, they feel different. And that's the whole point of it. Um, so for me, you know, when we went to Vegas, I, I was going to Mordor and, and flag was my Sauron. And, you know, so I really sort of leaned into, you know, some really great magical realism filmmakers. Like GDT was a big influence for these scenes. Uh, Costa Rica, uh, Jodorowsky, even kind of Gaspar Noe. I modeled some shots from Gaspar's and an Irreversible and some stuff like that. Like Santa Sangre, Time of the Gypsies. I mean, these, these sort of like classical magical realism films that really put gore front and center is something that we wanted to uh, experience when, uh, when we came to Flag. And, um, you know, I think they juxtaposed well with... The, uh, the the sort of uh, Banana Republic version of, uh, of, of Boulder, um, but 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 yeah, maybe it's jarring. But I think it's really jarring in a cool way. And you know, I love presenting two worlds as polar opposites, and sort of they had completely different visual language and and everything. And so we really went for it. I mean, I mean, I took we took big swings with that stuff, and we'll see what happens. That sounds pretty cool. I can remember reading the book and except for when flags around, you don't necessarily get a sense of that Vegas or new Vegas is sort of this, you know, game of Thrones level danger type zone, you know, <laughs> but it sounds like you guys might've created something kind of like that where, you know, someone doesn't like the cut of your jib and you're dead <laughs> and that, that kind of thing, which is more what you would expect but I didn't get that sense totally. Unless Flag was around, then he might do whatever he wants. And I think that was one of the places where we leaped a little bit from the book. Um, and some of it was for practical reasons. Some of it was for time reasons. But we had one location uh, to hmm. sell Vegas. We had one location, which was the casino. And we had a, a limited amount of time to let the audience know what these rules were. You know, So we very much took a sort of you know, Hieronymus Bosch 
Dante's Inferno version of this casino. We literally had multiple levels, like, you know, the nine levels of hell. Uh, and at the bottom level was this uh, gladiator pit with, you know, people who didn't make the make the cut or people who didn't follow the flag's dreams. And, you know, they were like a school teacher and an accountant and a lawyer that were given a, a chainsaw, a hammer and a pickaxe. And this was going the entire time. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think what we may have lost in some nuance, I think we gained in sort of creating a really visceral, intense world where we see what sort of devotion to an idol means uh, and what the penalty is for failing him. That that was, you know, obviously the, you know, in the book, that's the whole point of the Bobby Terry scene. And, you know, we made a couple changes in blocking and staging for that. But for the most part, that was a scene that we kind of really felt was really important to show, you know, flag at that point, his powers were somewhat uh, undefined in a really cool and mysterious way. And you're mm-hmm. kind of waiting for more. Um, and you didn't really know what was the price for letting him down. Uh, and so, you know, at least for me, that was one of the, the scenes from the book that I never, never forgot from even from reading it back in high school. And, um, and that was a scene that I, I really put a lot of effort and importance into making sure it, it really became clear right then of what are the stakes here? What happens when when Flag doesn't get what he wants? Uh, and I think it, it just that shed a whole new light on all the characters that were were serving him, uh, from Lloyd to Trash Can Man to Rat Woman. You kind of empathize with them for a second. You realize that you know the position that they were in. They kind of thought they were on this. Uh, you know, hedonism, uh, uh, limo ride. Uh, and suddenly the limo goes off the cliff and, um, and, uh, <laughs> and, and they're, they're all sort of sitting there watching this go down and they all have their moment there to kind of make one of their many stands inside their, inside their mind. It's like, you know, am I going to continue with this? Here, here, here's what I know happens. And, and, and is there any way out? For me, that was one of the most pivotal scenes I shot to kind of really, set up the characters who who were devoted to flag as, as well as flag himself when you mentioned the uh the pit for people that didn't make the cut i for some reason my mind flashed to dr evil telling scott that he's only semi-evil i mean you know not to sound too pretentious but like I, for me it was like i i, I was just the movie that was in my head in vegas was really apocalypse now i just kept you know the moments of you know the crosses and everything and you know so it was one of the cool things about the, the you know one of the really cool things about the, the project was that you know the cosmology was never really totally defined it wasn't like you know satan versus jesus because it was sort of less defined we got to sort of play with the archetypes a little bit more and i mean certainly there are the biblical references no doubt and I know Josh, for him, that was a big part of his personal experience with the book. Um, you know, but I, you know I, I didn't come to it, at least personally, from that angle. That wasn't my point of view. And it was fun, to, because of that, to, to play some of the more gray areas. It's one of the, I guess, criticisms that I've ever had about King's older work, especially, is that some of the good guys and bad guys can be too white hat, black hat, you know, mm-hmm. uh, to, the, to the extent that, you know, if you read too, min- too much of his work, you're basically like, oh, I remember this guy. He was the bad guy in the last book, even though he's not, but he is. Yeah. So it sounds like you're trying to sort out ways to modernize, especially Flag, without relying on that mustache twisting, kind of <laughs> kind of approach that he that he pretty much was in the book. Yeah, he really, um, you know, and and I think you know Alex's performance really internalized it a lot too, and you 
you know, he gave a very quiet performance. Uh, the power came not, you know, not from uh, uh, being boisterous or loud. And um, but yeah, you, I think you're right about that too. Like I was thinking, like some of the more the characters on the extremes. You have, you know, Trash Can Man and 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 Ezra Miller's uh, just completely uh, wild uh, take on it, which is uh, I think is gonna really something people are gonna love or hate. And and that's just my favorite thing about it. You know, and then you have you know Stu, who you know. That was one of the characters that we really worked hard, uh, at least, you know, speaking to myself about myself and the other directors to try to, like, show him struggle and show him make challenges. And, and, and I think, you know, show him flawed and that, you know, he missed all the warning signs for Harold, for example. And, you know, his own sort of innate goodness kind of prevented him from seeing, you know, evil growing right, you know, right next to him. He didn't want to, like, paint him too unlikable for that, but definitely wanted to make him feel culpable for that and let the audience wonder, like, you know, is make the audience see that this was happening and him not see it. I think that was an important Thing I, I tried to do with, with my scenes between Stu and Harold. Yeah, that that would add a wrinkle or something that, like we were discussing in our first podcast, that at this point, Stu in the, you know, just one episode down, I keep using, I don't want to overuse the, the term, but kind of Atticus Finch-like, you know, very, mm-hmm. what you see is what you get. And it sounds like that doesn't exactly change, but it does become a fault. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good twist. James is such a fantastic actor. You know, I loved his work in, in Westworld. And, um, you know, I think, you know, we saw him play such a complex character there. And I think he brought that same complexity to this. We would be remiss to say if we did not mention the fact that The Magicians is coming out. And uh, we're big fans of that over at Pod Clubhouse. So um, I guess any thoughts on that? Any the final season? You know, it's. Uh, I, I always forget that the net Netflix window is so far out from when it aired on Sci-Fi, but that ninety percent of people are probably watching on Netflix. So I got. I saw that same release. I kind of had. You know, I've been so busy with this uh, new project. I I hadn't really been following it, but you know, I got butterflies in my stomach when I saw that uh, in the press as well. And I think the final season's really fantastic. You know, it's a difficult season, of course, without Quentin, but it's nice to see how the characters bond together to fill that void and i you know without spoilers i don't think it's ever really filled and and not not to detriment of the story but i think that loss we, we don't roll over it uh, it's really the reason of the season uh and <laughs> and uh and, and we and it's it, it's it's powerful and it was just such a fun season to make and um, we didn't know the show was being canceled um but we, there were rumblings of it but we were all fighting for it you know it was one of these you know once in a lifetime experiences to be involved with that project my showrunners sarah john and henry um were the most incredible writers and people and and then really also really trusted us and, and really gave us a lot of space up in vancouver to you know interpret and make this wonderful show and you know i know the season four finale which i directed was polarizing in lots of ways um and you know i think the people that can find their way uh back to it uh and to give especially the first three episodes a chance i think you'll know by episode three how you feel about how we feel about Quentin, if that makes any sense. And um, I think it's really poetic and, and, and there's really some of the best writing of the entire season, those those first couple episodes. I'm excited for people to get into it. Nothing wrong with being divisive. You'd rather have work that 
creates an opinion <laughs> in people's minds than have it just be like, yeah, I forgot about that episode. You know, even if even if the feedback is I didn't want the story to go that direction, at least it's something that people are feeling and your work is doing that. Yeah, and it was funny because there was a rewatch party. Two of the actors on the show, uh, Jade and Brittany, do this little magician's rewatch thing, and they rewatched this episode last week. And I was like, I'm not ready for it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I still, I'm, I, I was one of the people that was torn by it. Uh, you know, I also became such great friends with Jason throughout the process, and it was hard to say goodbye to him and as well to the character Quentin that he embodied. Uh, but it, it's a great season five, and it was, I was so lucky to have that that opportunity to be involved in a show like that for so long it, it was uh, that was my third fifth year show in a row so i've had this you know really great luck of uh being on these long-running shows but the magician's family that was created it was really one in a million so that'll be coming up very soon so uh it'll be running concurrently with this dance so we'll have lots of chris fisher to to keep us <laughs> occupied and entertained um <laughs> that's awesome yeah. So uh, I guess just one final question from me, Paul. I don't know if you have anything else. Uh, go ahead. Uh, just basically, Chris, what's up next for you? I don't think I can say yet. Um, oh, I'm working on a, 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 it's, uh, I will say that it is the job that I believe my entire life has been training me for. Um, uh, it's a, it's, it's <laughs> no, uh, no it's, big thing. That is, that, is yeah. a hook. that is a hook if I ever heard one. <laughs> it is. It's, I, I don't know what the rules are yet with, uh, with talking about it. Uh, so I probably shouldn't say anything, but, um, but it's, it, we start shooting February 18th and I'm the producing director of it again. So I, I've been, you know, on the stand, I was uh, obviously just a, a guest director, but my career has become for the last 12 years more of a producing director. Uh, and that's what I'm doing on this project. So, you know, I've been, you know, here in Toronto, designing and building every set and creating a director's guide and the visual language and all these really exciting things. Um, so it's been uh, it's been nice counter-programming to, to be here and to, throw myself into something that as rewarding as this uh and and like i said it's you know it's a challenge right now but it's it's, it's been really great so it sounds like it's going to be a romantic comedy mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah exactly that's for sure uh <laughs> As I said before, for me, the holy trinity is, is horror, fantasy, and sci-fi. And I'll, I'll put it this way. It's, it's definitely sci-fi. That's all I can say. So, Paul, we're going to have to bookmark Buckets of Blood for our episodes five and six when we cover <laughs> when we cover that for The Stand. Like, I just made a note, Buckets of Blood. <laughs> all right. Well, this has been our interview with Chris Fisher, the director of episodes five and six of The Stand. It has been a treat to get to hear about your work on the show and other shows that you've been working on in your history. It's been, I, I mean, I super enjoy talking to uh, people in the industry and, and this has been no exception to that. So thank you very much for your time today. I'm so grateful for you guys and uh, thank you for supporting the show and supporting the magicians. And um, I hope I uh, uh, love to come back and talk again. So if there's anything else I can do, let me know. Thank right. you so much. Thank you. If you listen to this and have any other questions for Chris, he is wide open for us to ask him anything. And he might even be able to come back on if you have a lot of questions for him. So 
You can use our Facebook page. You can use Twitter. You can use our own website, podclubhouse.com. Just write in, tell us what you want us to ask him, and we'll see if we can get you an answer. So this has been Paul with Pod Clubhouse. This is Sheila with Pod Clubhouse. And this is Inez. If you could head on over to where you get your podcast from, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher, and rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast so that you can get a notification anytime we drop a new episode or a new interview, which is happening this week as well. That would be greatly appreciated. Also, if you could rate us with five stars, that helps other people find this show and get as much enjoyment out of it as you do. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. Pod Clubhouse.